I hope that you're doing well this morning. I'm so excited for this morning's text. Uh, I want to hope that you're still there. Draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to go through basically the first 18, well, not the first, all 18 verses of this particular chapter this morning. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about 2 Corinthians 3 because it's a very fascinating letter. Uh, one that I think uh, draws a lot of attention a lot of times, and it's interesting, at least to me it is, because... It's not a letter where Paul is, you know, getting into a really scandalous matter. He's not addressing a problem with this church at Corinth. Actually, he's somewhat, we could say, clearing his own name. Uh, this is not like 1 Corinthians, where there was a very bad thing going on in the church, and he's trying to address that. Actually, uh, there were those within the Corinthian church who had come to sort of question Paul's standing as an apostle. They become to become uh, untrusting of his leadership as in, uh, as a, as one in the early church, questioning his authority, questioning his entire ministry. We could say, and those voices began to grow so loud and so influential that Paul uh, finds himself composing this letter as a matter out of a matter of necessity. Explaining both what the ministry of the gospel is while also, yes, sort of demonstrating that, yes, I'm an apostle. You can trust the words that I am giving you. And he's not doing this because he's prideful, because he wants to go on some, we could say, ego trip, we could, if you will. He's not acting out of hubris. He is here very concerned that the very gospel that Paul is all about, that very truth that he is here proclaiming is in the balance. It's on the verge of being discarded. And such is why he walks the Corinthians through all of what he is about. You can sense his exasperation, this frustration that's kind of seeping through Paul's words in the, word, in, in the verses that we read this morning. The opening verses of chapter 3. Where Paul questions them. Do we begin to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? <laughs> after all that he had invested, after all that he had poured into these Corinthian believers at this church, he is here now basically still being asked, show us your resume. Give us your credentials, Paul. Well, how can we really trust you? And essentially he's calling them onto the carpet for this. <laughs> Do I really have to go through the charade of getting letters of recommendation from my pals back in Jerusalem to prove to you that I'm an apostle? Aren't we past this? You can kind of sense Paul's frustration here. Aren't we past this whole notion of letters of recommendation that prove the words that I am saying are true and from Christ? And such is when he kind of, I would say, turns the tables on this church. As he pointedly tells them that if you really want proof, if you are really desirous of some sort of listing of credentials, that what I'm saying is true, just look in the mirror. Verse 2. Ye are our epistle, written on our hearts, known and read of all men. You are the ones. You are our credentials. You want proof of everything that I've ever told you and how it is true. Just look at yourselves and the great outworking of the Holy Spirit in you. What a testimony that he gives them. <laughs> they themselves, this Corinthian church, they were his commendation, Paul is saying. They were proof that this ministry of the gospel was true and good and faithful. 
which I'm sure was an encouraging word, but also a convicting word from this apostle. Because again, step back and think about what he has just stated here to this church. That the very ones who were disputing his authority and sort of questioning his integrity have now just been told they have a spot reserved on Paul's heart. That's how beloved this church was. Again, as he says, you are our epistle in our hearts. Known and read of all men, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. He attributes all of this work, all of this church's belovedness to that person, the Spirit of the living God. Which is to say, this was they themselves were a testimony, not of Peter's, or excuse me, not of Paul's. Efforts and energies and all of the things that he had endeavored to accomplish. They are a testimony of God's work. You are living and breathing letters that Christ's work in you is true. Is what Paul is here saying. He was just a messenger. I get the sense also that Peter. Or I keep saying that. I was speaking on Peter in Sunday school. Excuse me. Paul here I think anticipates this. We could say stunned silence of the Corinthians. They've just been told that they are his letter of recommendation. <laughs> and then he proceeds to tell them all that ministry is about. I would say that that's what this chapter is about. What is ministry? What is Paul's ministry? He sort of hints at this in the closing verses of chapter 2. This, we could say, is Paul's Ministry philosophy, if you want to give it a title, where he talks about, well, I'll just read it. Verse 15 of chapter 2. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved and in them that perish. Notice. (laughs) To them that are already saved, a part of the church, and to them who are perishing, what are we? We are an aroma of Christ. (laughs) That's what he's all about. When you're around Paul, you smell Jesus, if you will. (laughs) You get the sense that that's what he's all about. He's oozing this message of Christ. And he says, to the one we are the savior of death unto death. And to the other we are the savior of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity. But as of God. In the sight of God speak we in Christ. He's saying we're not like those others who are about peddling the message of Jesus for their own gain, for their own reputation, to sort of build their own letters of recommendation because of how efficient they are at speaking and how prolific they are at drawing crowds. That's not what we're about. We're not about that. We're about Christ. Because he, as he is saying here, hinting here already, he is our sufficiency. But then this this sort of message of Paul's ministry is just made more clear here in the rest of this chapter of 2 Corinthians 3. Where I think we're going to see this morning three aspects of all true and faithful ministers of Christ. Aspects I would say that are not merely features of Paul's ministry. These that we're going to detail this morning aren't just things that defined Paul's ministry. And they didn't just define the ministry of the church at Corinth. And they didn't just define the ministry of the New Testament church in this very era. They define us today. Yes, I think that what Paul here describes 
are aspects of ministry that are just as true and necessary and applicable to you and I right where we are. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question. I want you to kind of think about this question as we're going through this particular text this morning. What is my ministry? Think about that as you are going about your life, as you're going about your, the things that you are responsible for. What is my ministry? Maybe you've never given that thought much consideration before. Maybe you think, I've only ever taught really small Bible devotions or Bible school lessons. And they don't feel big enough, quote unquote, to be called a ministry. Maybe you think that you you aren't even a minister at all. You're not a missionary. You're not a pastor. You're not a teacher. You're not even a leader of anything in the church. You come on Sundays. Even if all of those things are true, I'm here to remind you this morning, you have a ministry and you are a minister right where you are. Wherever God has placed you, wherever God has put you, those with whom you do life and do work and interact with on a daily basis, that, my friends, is your ministry. Those are the ones God has put into your life for a very specific purpose. A purpose to minister the good news that he has given us right here. He's put you there for a reason. To be a minister, as he says here, of his glory. And maybe, maybe you're like Moses. If you remember Exodus 3 and 4. And you're already listing a million and one reasons why you can't be a minister. I can't speak good as Moses says. I don't know how to speak. I don't know how to articulate these things. I'm not good. I, I, God, you got the wrong guy. If you're thinking of those certain things, you're in good company. Because Moses, the leader of God's people out of Egypt, said those very same things. <laughs> Which is just to say, you have a ministry. God has given you one specific to you. And it ought to be, I would say, including of these three things. First of all, you have been given a ministry of commendation. A ministry of commendation. Notice as here in verses 4 through 6, Paul sort of expands on this idea of what qualifies him for ministry. And he does so in, I would say, a very, very profound way. Because, as we'll see, he doesn't lean on anything in himself. He doesn't lean on this idea that he'd become this excellent church planter, one who had roused so many different churches from the dust and from the ashes into heights of glory. He doesn't lean on that, any sort of prowess, any sort of expertise in preaching. No, he leans on Christ. Notice, in such trust have we through Christ to Godward. He leans all of his confidence on Christ alone. And then he proceeds to say matter-of-factly, very definitively, that he does not have any sufficiency in and of himself. Note, as he says, not that we are insufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. My authority, my credibility, all of that stuff, my success has nothing to do with me, Paul says. 
has nothing to do with my acumen to preach, my ability to minister, my ability to lead. It's all because of Christ. It's all because of him. It's all because of his doing and working through me. As he says in the previous letter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he actually considers himself the least of the apostles. He doesn't stand on his expertise and his abilities. He says, everything I have, everything that I am, I owe it all to Jesus. He is my trust, my confidence, and my sufficiency. He is the one who has made me fit for this. And he says the same thing in verse 6. Notice, who hath also made us able ministers of the New Testament. Made there is a very fabulous word. It means just that. Render fit or to equip or to qualify. You can sense Paul's motives here as he is saying to this church. Testifying to them. It was God's Son and Spirit alone who has equipped me to do the ministry that now I can see in you he has done. As he says earlier, you are living epistles of the ministry that God has accomplished through me. And I am nothing, Paul is saying. He's the one who has gotten all of the success and credit. I am but a vessel, Paul says. He knows Very clearly that he, there's nothing in him, there's nothing in Paul that qualifies him for ministry. You can uh, hear Paul's testimony throughout almost every letter. He talks about his testimony in Galatians. He says it multiple times in Acts. He talks about it in Philippians. He has that wonderful quote in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Where he calls himself the chief of sinners. Throughout all of Paul's writing, he knew himself to be exactly what he was. The least of all people who should be doing this thing called preaching the grace of Christ. And he says, this is what God does. He makes us commendable for the ministry that he has called us to. He qualifies us for the very things that he wants us to accomplish. He makes us, as he says, able ministers of the New Testament. Which brings to mind that very familiar adage. That God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. (laughs) Which I would say is a very scriptural sentiment. In fact, not just Paul, flip through the Bible and you'll see this playing out. Almost over and over and over again, the Bible is concerned with, or even we could say written by, those who on their own are unfit and unqualified to have anything to do with God. Paul, good example. Peter, again, another great example. One who was unfit for the ministry that God called him to. And notice that he is called, quote, a rock before he demonstrates what that word really means. He's called the rock upon which the church is built. And of course we know that it wasn't Peter, but he is referred to there. And that same breath that on your confession, Peter, on your confession that I am the Christ, Jesus tells them, on that I will build my church. And what does Peter do in the next couple hours? Goes out and denies his Lord. Peter wasn't fit 
And that God made him so. Paul and Peter were equipped to ministry not because of themselves but in spite of themselves. And you could even say all of the apostles were in the same boat. They weren't fit for what God had called them to do. What Christ had commissioned them to do. What, are they, what do we find them doing in those hours of Jesus' crucifixion? They're running. They're scattering. They're fleeing for their lives. And yet, <laughs> a couple months after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they are, as it says in the book of Acts, turning the world upside down. They were men who were unfit and unqualified for the things that God had put before them. And yet God's spirit makes them able. He renders them fit for the calling that he has given them. God alone, Christ alone is their commendation. Others I think of are Jacob. That deceiver. That swindler who is always going about seeking his own ends. And what does his name change to? Israel. (laughs) One of the greatest patriarchs in the history of that nation. I think of Moses as we already mentioned. In fact, let me just read that verse. I I don't have time maybe this morning but I'm going to do it anyways. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, I want you to see this moment where Moses being called of by God to lead his people. And notice his excuses. Notice his stammering tongue. Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore uh, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or who the seeing, or the blind? Have I not the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. This (laughs) is so indicative of what God loves to do. It is his pattern, it is his prerogative, we might say, to draw on the most unlikely of people to be representatives of his name and his truth and his glory. In fact, that's what he loves to do. He loves using the fools to upend the wise. He loves using the small to overturn the strong and the mighty. This is what he does throughout scripture. Paul talks about this in the previous letter. We won't read those verses. But you can go to 1 Corinthians 1.26. And talk. And he he talks about that very thing. That the cross is the prime example of the foolishness of God's glory. And what's what appears to be small and insignificant. And defeat is actually victory. Which just is to say this. Is the same holds true for you and for me this morning. We don't have any ability to accomplish the things that God has given us on our own. No sufficiency in and of ourselves. No commendability or credibility in our own selves. And as soon as I would say, as we begin trusting in our own abilities, the things that God has called us to do will begin to crumble and dissolve in our fingers. God 
alone is our sufficiency. He is our confidence. He is our worthiness. And all of our ministries are just pointing to him. He's the one. He's the one that does it. He's the one that makes it so. There's a great Casting Crowns song that was released recently. Well, I think it was on their newest record. It was called, very, uh, very aptly, Nobody. And the words go something like this. <laughs> I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. <laughs> Which I think is a very succinct way of describing exactly what Paul is here articulating. That's who I am. I'm nobody. And I'm trying to tell you all about that somebody who saved me, who delivered me, who saved me from my sins. And that's you and I this morning. We have a ministry of commendation. But also too, number two, we have a ministry of proclamation. Notice after affirming this very truth that what commends him for ministry isn't himself. It is Christ alone. Notice how he then articulates in details what he is equipped for. Verse 6 again. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. As it is also translated, New Covenant, which we could say is shorthand for gospel. He's made us able ministers and preachers of the gospel. And then he goes on, as we'll detail in a moment, as he shows in those subsequent verses how and why this gospel is better. But he says it there in verse 10. As he says, by reason of the glory which excelleth. What is that? What is this glory that excels? Well, notice verse 13. As Paul is here talking, and he alludes to a very important moment in Israel's history. Notice, and not as Moses, which, or let me back into verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remained of the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ? But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Nevertheless, when it shall, be, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. He's using that moment in Israel's history when Moses and all of the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai. Of course, you might remember that it comes from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Where Moses is with Yahweh himself. He is sitting with Jehovah and he's having the Ten Commandments inscribed on tablets of stone. And he's sitting with the glorious Lord. And as he comes down from the mountain. It says that his face is shining. It's radiating with such glory. That God's people can't take it all in. Such is why if you look at it, the end of Exodus 34. You, we won't go there. But you can note it. He puts a veil over his face. That beaming glory which shone from Moses' face as he comes down from sitting with the Lord of hosts himself is an example and an illustration of exactly this holiness that is so indicative of who God is. It's a holiness of unflinching righteousness. 
That's what that glory is showing. It's perfect. It's pure. It's holy. It's righteous. And as we might note, the Israelites have already shown that they can't live up to it. Just prior to this, we have that incredible moment in Exodus chapter 32 where the people of Israel are growing restless. They're growing antsy. Moses has been gone for far too long. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. And God almost there repents that he ever chose this people through whom to bless the nations. And yet it is Moses there who intervenes, acts as we might say as a mediator. And then that's where we get the second, we could say, writing of the Ten Commandments. Which is in Exodus 33 and 34. It's at this moment. This veil that covers his face. Then we can say serves as this reminder of Israel's failure. Reminds the people of Israel that they failed to uphold this righteous, glorious calling that God had given them. And it's also a protection against God's judgment at the same time. And it is with that in mind that Paul says to this church so wonderfully. The end of verse 14. The veil is done away in Christ. No more covering up the glory of God. No more covering and and concealing and hiding it away. This God in Christ, he takes away the veil, verse 16. The veil is upon their heart, verse 15. But the Lord, through the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. He renders all of that old way of pursuing righteousness, that old covenant of laws and rites and rituals. With Paul here, we affirm it is done away in Christ. Because in the gospel, we have the glory of God most truly, most fully revealed in the face of Christ. He gets to this in chapter 4. Look at verse 6 where he says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You catch what he's saying? We have a way better ministry because our ministry is all about proclaiming not a glorious rite or ritual or any of those things. It's about proclaiming a face, a person. The one in whom all of God's glory was confined. Yes, in Jesus, it was most fully revealed. He says, that's what ministry is all about. It's pointing to a person. Pointing to one who had flesh and bone and skin and blood and sinew. All of what makes up a person is what made of the Lord Jesus. And he says, in him was the fullness of God's glory revealed. He is the one we proclaim, the one we point to, as Paul here says. And he says, as we continue, again, notice verse 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. What ministry is all about is unveiling this glorious purpose that is found in Christ. He's the one we preach. He's the one we point to. He's the one we are always showing that is truer and better than all things. We have a ministry of proclamation. 
This, I would say, heightens whatever ministry you're involved in. Wherever God has put you, small ministry, big ministry, old ministry, young ministry, (laughs) wherever God has put you, you are there to do one thing, to proclaim his glory as seen and known and revealed in Christ. Yes, even to five-year-olds, to 50-year-olds, to 90-year-olds. Regardless of where he has put us, when we're interacting with our coworkers, when we're interacting with our estranged family members, when we're with our small children, there are moments, yes, where we are revealing God's glory in Christ. Which I think makes this statement true, that there are no insignificant ministries in the kingdom of God. There are no small occurrences, no little things that we can just do haphazardly. Every moment that you have with someone in the church of God who, are, who is even, yes, as Paul would say, those who are uh, perishing is a moment to proclaim the glory of God in Christ. It's a moment of ministry that God has given you. A ministry of commendation, a ministry of proclamation, and lastly, I want to hasten and say this, a ministry of expectation. Because go back to verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul here is drawing attention to this new covenant ministry, this new testament ministry, by likewise comparing and contrasting it with, as he is going to say, the ministration of death. And essentially what he's going to do here in these verses is he's setting side by side, as we noted, the law of Moses with the gospel of Christ. As they are means for righteousness. Moses, of course, is the representative of the law. He's representative of the old covenant, the way in which they were atoned through all those rites and rituals and ceremonies. And Christ is here, as he is going to say, is representative of the new covenant, the New Testament, the gospel. Because he himself is their atoning sacrifice. And as we said, the gospel is better because it reveals Christ. But it's also better because of the hope that it gives us. Notice verse 7. And catch, if you can, the word that is most on Christ's mind. Or Paul's mind. Notice verse 7, but if the ministration of death, which is the law, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious has no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious much more, that that which remaineth is glorious. You catch what's on his mind? The glory of God is revealed in ministry, as we've just noted, but also... This notion of glory, which so fills this ministry of the gospel, is what God is all about. But as if that weren't enough, 
As we've already said, as if that weren't already mind-blowing, that this glorious ministry of spirit and of life was given to those who are so undeserving and unfit and unqualified for it. Paul proceeds to say there in verse 12, seeing then we have such hope. Our hope is the same thing. It's an expectation of glory. Because notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. Now the spirit of the Lord that is now the Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Even as by the spirit of the Lord. Wow. The glory which fills the ministry of the gospel is the very hopeful expectation of glory that you are now being changed into by that same ministry. It's what's standing out there in front of us. This hope, this expectation, this longing. As we draw people to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we are likewise along with them, changed from glory into glory. And that word changed there is very significant. It's the word that was used in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration of Christ. And that's what he's saying, that the Spirit of God, which points ever and only to Christ Jesus, is that same Spirit which changes us into Christ's very glory himself. That's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the ministry that we proclaim and that we preach and that we everywhere are pointing to is just this. It's a ministry of God's glory revealed in us through this spirit, the spirit of Christ. And it's this hope that this one day, this world which is so riddled with sin and wreckage and darkness will one day be transfigured, yes, into the glorious kingdom of Christ. When John the Apostle writes in Revelation chapter 21 that Christ has promised that he's going to make all things new. This is what he's talking about. Changing all things into his glory. And likewise I would say that this is what all our ministries are about to. No matter where you are. No matter to whom your ministry is uh, given. Whatever audience you have, whatever venue you have, you have been equipped by God's Spirit for a ministry of God's glory. That's His calling on your life. You know, some people, because I haven't been called by God to anything. I'm not called to preach. I'm not called to stand up behind a pulpit such as this and proclaim truth like this. Maybe not. But you have a calling even still. You have a purpose even still. You have a mission that God has put before you even still. You have a ministry that God has put you in right where you are. Wherever you've been placed. That's where you have been placed on purpose. With this message. This message of hope, this message of deliverance, this message of glory. And therefore, like Paul, we can say with great plainness of speech, we proclaim this message. 
The word plainness of speech really just means fearless and free and frank. That's you and I this morning. You and I this morning, with this blessed truth of the gospel, we have been called to be free and fearless ministers of this very truth, proclaiming the glory of God in Christ. Free and fearless, regardless of what other people say. Regardless of what our friends say. Regardless of what our peers say. Regardless of what our, 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 uh, our, our family says. Regardless of what government says. We are free and fearless in Christ to speak this message. To minister right where you are this message. I don't know who God has put around you. Who God has put in your life. They are there for one reason. Because as I think it was the old D.L. Moody or Billy Sunday, one of those old evangelists, that you might be the only Bible people ever read. You are there for a reason. To minister to this wonderful glory of God in Christ Jesus. Don't downplay where you've been placed. Don't downplay I'm not as spiritual because I work in such and such field. I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. (laughs) It's one that's even more uh, provocative and powerful. You've been placed in that sales office, (laughs) in that grocery store, on that construction site. Wherever you've been placed, you've been placed there by God to minister to his son Jesus. What a wonderful hope and truth and calling. This morning, I encourage everyone here this morning to embrace this wonderfully free and fearless ministry you've been given in Christ. Don't cower from the voices that would tell you otherwise, speak something else. Don't talk to me about that. You are free and fearless in Christ Jesus. He is your condemnate. He is your commendation. He is the one you proclaim. And he's the one who gives us this wonderful, glorious, hopeful expectation. He is your message. He is your ministry. Let us pray.